yeah, but if you don't feel guilty, then right, then you're not being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Right, right. How about being embraced in the love of the Holy Spirit? How about a hundred percent, not ninety-five, believing that Jesus took care of that sin? Hmm. That it. That this is this is the counterintuitive thing that is the exact opposite of the spirit of religion. Hey guys, I'm Michael Lewis with Men of True Worth. I'm really excited to share today's episode. I got to sit down with the dynamic Dr. Bob Fisher. This was a really cool conversation that I got to have with him. And I really think you guys are going to be blessed by listening to this. I actually split this episode, this interview, into two parts because I really want this to be an awesome experience for you. You're really going to enjoy this. You don't want to miss it. In this first part, we talked all about identity in Christ. And the one thing that really makes Jesus angry, I think you're going to be surprised by what it is. Uh, enjoy the episode. Bye. All right. Welcome to another episode of Men of True Worth. Today, I have a man of true worth right here with me, Dr. Bob Fisher. Uh, Dr. Bob, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. yeah. So, um, as always, I want to give the audience, everybody tuning in, an opportunity to, to get to know you, to get to know who you are, what made you the man you are today. Mm. So you can start wherever you want and go from there. Just, right. just uh, give us all the details. So. Big old, big old softball, open-ended question. <laughs> all right, all right. So I grew up in a, uh, a farming village that, in a, a new Amish sect. Uh, Mennonites live there as well. Of course, can't talk to Mennonites because, you know, it's so, such a difference there. But um, uh, pretty much grew up uh, Arminian, uh, hyper-Arminian, if you know what I mean, and uh, never really connected with it, got out of there, right? Ran away to Daytona Beach and uh, partied like crazy and everything, and then found out that God lives here. I thought I'd run away, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's like a bulldog who, who bit me and wouldn't let go. And uh, I actually had a personal relationship with God way back then as a full-blown sinner uh, because I would talk to him. I would say, leave me alone. I'm having fun, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he's, he's gentle and persistent. And uh, eventually I... Uh, Came to know him personally, and everything changed. Everything changed from the inside. It's remarkable what he taught me because the way I grew up, it, my impression—I don't know if it's if it's real or not—but the impression that I was under ever since I could remember is that is that Christianity is a set of rules. It's morality. It's about doing the right thing and faith in Christ, right? But it's all about appearance—not appearance is wrong word. Uh, but, but but about your actions, your works, right? Um, they didn't believe in eternal security, right? Uh, and so you never quite know if daddy if daddy loves you or, or well, he loves you, but you never quite know if you're going to be put back out on the street, you know. And so you always have to you always have to confess, you always have to ask for forgiveness, that that kind of thing, right? Uh, and um, man, he he found me, he bought me, he caught me. And uh, he transformed me, and he taught me. He taught me something that only that experience could have taught me: his love for me, his unconditional love for me. You know, um, it's too long of a story to tell right here, but uh, it is it is the heart of the, the passion that I have 
for ministry is God's love, his incredible, insatiable love for us, right? Uh, I, I could go on, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, so I'm, I really appreciate you going into that. Now, you said uh, you grew up in Amish, near Amish community or in an Amish community? It you weren't was, Amish, right? Yes. Or you were Amish. It was called New Amish. There's lots of different kinds of Amish, and everybody thinks horse and buggy. That's old order. It was new order. It's called apostolic. But uh, there's, there's many of that type. You know, so we had automobiles and things like that. We had electricity and that sort of thing. Okay. But uh, the theology is the same. So a little different than what we see in the movies and stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. So um, well, when you say hyper-Arminianism, what, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? Well, um, just really on the edge of uh, living in fear all the time, not living in comfort, not living in the secure nest of loving relationship but rather focusing on self and behavior. That was my impression ever since I can remember. And I might be wrong, and maybe I've got some of my family and friends that, that, that would see it differently, uh, but that was the, the impression that I had growing up. You know, My, my father, who, who passed away many years ago, uh, said he, he didn't know that he was going to heaven. He hoped so. It's like this man is an incredibly godly, good man, you know, had no security. And so what I know from my my grad school education in psychology is that what the human soul longs for more than anything is security. And you just think homo sapiens are one of the many species of mammals, right? What what makes a mammal a mammal in part is that it is community-centered, and it wants to be, it wants to belong, it wants to be attached with others of its tribe, right? Homo sapiens are no different. And so you look at even the Old Covenant, one of the many penalties for screwing up is that you're outside of camp until morning, right? Mm. To be outside of the tribe is punishment, right? And so, so when, when I think about the beautiful doctrine of eternal security, it's like God made us to long for security, and then he provided us with security. And, and it seems to me, my opinion, a parent who would let his children live under the threat of being put out isn't loving. It's this, this overwhelming love that goes beyond the bounds of what is reasonable. Jesus dying on the cross was not reasonable. It wasn't fair. You know what I mean? No, nobody would right. expect that. But, but he goes to this extreme length to show his love for us, right? And, and, and all he says is just, just come, just come. Don't worry about that. I got that. Just come, just come, right? And, and so, so one of the other things that I learned in school is about what the human soul longs for. It's an incredible, incredible truth that psychologists understand that the general population does not. People think that what I need is love. It's not true. You look, if that was true, what, does, what is the logical conclusion then? If what I am missing is love, and what I need is love, then I'm out looking for love. 
And what does that lead to? That leads to a mindset and a behavior that Jesus called hypocrisy. Hypocrite is a actor on a stage, right? Uh, portraying, right? Holding up a mask, presenting themselves a certain way, right? Why? Why do you do it? Why do I do it? Why do we present ourselves a certain prescribed way? It is in order to manipulate the response of other people. That, that if, I, if I say this and I say it this way or I say it at this time or whatever, then you will say the thing I want you to say. This is, this is manipulation, and it's literally the definition of the biblical word witchcraft. If you think about, you know, I've got a, a potion or I have a, a, I can put you under my spell. I can cause you to not say the thing I don't want you to say. I can cause you to say the thing I want you to say, right? The practice of witchcraft is like incantations. I choose my words carefully and I'm really smooth and slick and I can, I can put you under my spell. That is horrible, absolutely horrible. What, what Jesus wants is for us to live naked and unashamed. It's how he created the first humans, naked and unashamed. Here I am. So you're saying that, that hypocrisy and that, that need to, to be kind of hypocrite, to put on that fake face, to be kind of fake in the face of everybody, is an attempt to control what, the way other people treat us, Yes. control the way they react to us, right. and control... Almost like control our world, basically yes. kind of control our surroundings, mm -hmm. but also the manipulation where we're manipulating other people mm -hmm. to to not be themselves as well, and that's where and you were mentioning witchcraft and stuff. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we we uh, Jesus' favorite insult for the for the Pharisees, the religious people, the people that he came out against was hypocrite, and that means actor on a stage. In the day, what did actors do for the crowd? They would pick up a mask. So today, the icon, uh, if you enroll in a drama class or something, the icon that, that, that demonstrates drama are the three masks, mad, glad, sad. The Latin term for mask is persona. So I select my persona or my personality, I select how I wish to be seen and present that to the world. Okay? That is witchcraft. Now, there's exactly one time in the New Testament when it says Jesus was angry. Do you know when that was? I suppose when, when he flipped the tables in the temple. That's what literally everybody says to that. Why? Because it was so obvious that he was angry. There can be no question he was angry, right? Besides flipping tables, that's an inanimate, inanimate object. He got a rope and he was whipping people, right? Okay, I think we would kick Jesus out of our church because that's an overreaction, right? Okay, but <laughs> the Holy Spirit made it ridiculously obvious that he was angry, but yet it doesn't say he was angry. And I personally believe it is to punctuate the one time the Holy Spirit inspired the writer to say Jesus was angry. And it was when he was talking to the hypocrites. 
to really emphasize that. He's calling him a hypocrite, which means you're pretending. You're hiding behind a mask. You're presenting something, attempting to manipulate the opinion of the crowd instead of just being honest, right? Right. Okay, so if you really want to tick him off, cover up. So on on the same theme, right? <laughs> I love thinking about heaven. I, I love a couple there's a couple of descriptions of heaven that I can't get out of my head. One thing is there's light everywhere. Second is there's no shadow. And the third one is you know as you're known. That sounds like naked and unashamed. So my pet description definition of mental health is to be naked and unashamed just to be honest just be honest right so there's eight billion people on this planet and we're worried about trying to get certain ones to like us and so we pretend to be whatever it is we think is going to get them to like us or not hate us or whatever right meanwhile if we were just completely naked and unashamed and just completely honest Instead of having those 30 people over there that like the mask we present, we would have 30 people over here who actually like us. So why, why, how does it make any sense? It makes no sense. One of the biggest things that I deal with is, is troubles in relationships, right? And, and it's because people are out there attempting to manipulate their spouse or child or parent or whatever, right? Okay, why not just be naked? So... When, I'm, I'm, I'm over-talking here, no, but I, 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 I got like to share this, okay? How many different kinds of ex- executions did the Romans do? I don't know. A lot, really. you know. Uh, so, so you could throw somebody off a cliff. You could impale them with a, with a, a spear. Uh, you could cut them in half, saw them in half. You could boil them in oil. You could stone them. You could do any of these things, right? Why did Jesus die on a cross? Why was it that specific method? From the Romans' point of view, or or prophecy wise, uh, spiritual. Why, spiritual. Why? Why? Why that one? Well, what I would, well, I would just say, I would believe it came from whenever they said he would. Um, I believe it said he would die on a tree, hung on a tree. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some, somewhere in the Old Testament, but I don't. I don't remember exactly, but that's what well. They I would could go. they could have hung him by a neck. They they could have impaled right. him or something like that. But yet he was nailed to a cross. Paul reveals the reason why. It says that when Jesus hung on the cross, he bore our shame. All the movies are wrong. Jesus was naked. Hmm. And the fact that his arms were nailed out like this is proof positive for everyone to see, to experience, that the second Adam didn't do what the first Adam did. The first Adam sinned, by what? Eating the fruit, right? Okay. What part of the body did the first Adam use to sin? His mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So when he then felt shame, did he do this? Cover his mouth? No. What did he cover? That's interesting. So he covered his private parts. How does that make any sense? Why wouldn't he cover the part of his body that committed the shameful act? He covered his privates. Jesus, the second Adam, had his arms nailed out to the side, 
as proof that he did not cover his privates, and he was naked. Beyond being naked, he was elevated up there. So when the people at the, <laughs> down there are looking up there, yeah, what's right in the foreground? Yeah. And, and who was there? His mother and his best friend? Eek. See, so, so I think that's a part of the story that's missed, is that, is that God went to enormous trouble to bear our shame. Shame is what we cover ourselves with. The persona, the personality, the mask that we wear is an attempt to hide behind something. And it makes Jesus angry at us when we do it. Hmm. And so what is counseling? What, it, it, it is this. It is this revelation. God loves you. Why would you hide? Why would you do that? That doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? He made you and made you the way he did. You know what I mean? But the spirit of religion that I grew up with and the spirit of religion that I think I see is rampant all around me oh, it drives me crazy. It is people who are looking at themselves and giving themselves a grade. I did good today. I give myself an A. Ooh, I really screwed up. That was a D minus. I got to beg for forgiveness. You know what I mean? Right? Self-focus is the spirit of religion, where, where Jesus is just naked and unashamed, and he says, I died naked so that you don't cover. Just come here. I got you. I got you. You're not an orphan on the street, and I didn't put you into a foster home. I adopted you. I, gave, I sealed you with the Holy Spirit, the promise of redemption, right? Believe it. Act like it. So, all right, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just on a roll here, so let me, let, me, let me run, okay? A lot of people have heard of Proverbs 31 ministries, and Proverbs 31, the, the, latter, the latter portion of it, is the description of this beautiful wife, this ideal woman, right? And if you actually go and read it, what you see is a woman who is incredibly confident and powerful with great forethought, and she's out there kicking butt in the world. I mean, she's got everything figured out and planned and taken care of, you know, and she's doing charitable works and all that stuff, right? She is so secure in herself that she's not drawing down off of the energy of her husband. She's providing energy to her husband, right? Hmm. Okay, it's beautiful. Most people know Proverbs 31. Go read it. It's astounding, this woman. Like, who wouldn't want that for a wife, right? Okay, what are we? We're the bride of Christ. What kind of bride does Jesus want? One that grovels, one that's insincere, uh, insecure, one who, who thinks that they're lacking and is, needs something, you know what I mean? Or one who's filled with power, who's radiant, yeah. who, who is prospering. I love where you're going with that. No, that, that's really good. You can continue if you like, but I, I really love where you're going with that. Yeah. That's, uh, what, are, what are you thinking? That's, that's awesome. Just that idea that because for some reason I, I tend to um, run into that idea of, you know, Oh, getting into that mindset of I'm no good. I'm just a worm. I'm I'm yeah. like nobody. And it's like I don't know why. Why do people think that that makes them more worthy of Christ or something <sighs> like that? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It I, doesn't. I, I really don't understand the, the the thought process. 
Um, I do want to circle back around yeah. on something you were you were talking about a couple of things, but um, but I also want to, as far as the the audience goes, you you are a counselor. You have a counseling mm-hmm. center. Yeah. Um, um, how long have you been doing that? Uh, Ten years now. Okay. Yeah, professionally. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you really in, you really enjoy that line of work. Oh, it's it's so fulfilling. Uh, what what is it now? It's uh, six o'clock. Uh, my day started fourteen hours ago, and you still got plenty of energy. I'm energized by it. See, when you when you're operating in your gift, in your purpose, it isn't work. It is life. I'm the vine. You're the branch. I'm a wellspring inside of you that you'd never thirst. Right? Uh, you're, when you're when you're tapped into your purpose and you know your why. Uh, your Ephesians two ten right, uh, you're you're energized by it, not exhausted. That's amazing. Now, uh, I wanted to bring up that you're a counselor, just so that people mm. have an idea where where you're coming from mm. with with a lot of this and your your education, your background. Now, I really liked what you were saying about uh, shame mm-hmm. and how when when we're hiding what we're doing. We're ashamed of what we're doing, so we hide it. We put on this face, a spirit of religion that says, um, I better look good or people are going to see me for something or mm-hmm. or they're going to see that I'm not really what I look like when I show up at church. <laughs> now, that was... I'm glad you brought that up because that was probably the biggest thing that was revealed to me whenever... Um, like whenever I came out of pornography and mm-hmm. things like that, mm-hmm. it was that idea that I had to hide it that was keeping me there for so long. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's kind of like, that's a principle that's really near and dear to me. So I'm glad you, you went down that route yeah. and you expanded on that idea. Um, and it also, like what you're saying, it, it affects so many areas of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, as a man... Where are these areas of shame? What's it really hurting? Is like marriage-wise, parenting, or just uh, being a man in general? Like, wh- what can where where is this hurting the men in the church, and how can they get out of it? Yeah, let's start with your soul. How about that? How about starting with <laughs> you? You know what I mean, right? Yeah, uh, we're supposed to be the uh, the leaders, right? Uh, the initiators, right? Uh, you, you mentioned porn, so I, I want to tell you my story with that, and, and, it, and it relates to this idea, right? So, uh, um, by the way, I hate George Barna. I can't stand him because the, he, is that the Barna group? Uh huh. Yeah, because every time I read anything of his, it angers me because I want to think that we're better than that. Oh, no, I'm yeah. being facetious about that. It's just that that the, the data is so revealing. Mm-hmm. about the human condition. And so we, we, we dance around saying, ooh, I told a fib, right? Meanwhile, you know, you're cheating on your spouse or whatever. You know, I mean, these little popcorn sins are a joke, you know? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it, right? I mean, we really do some bad stuff. I mean, at least that's the, the world that I, I seem to live in all day, of course. Mm-hmm. Anyway, 
so I was addicted to porn. And I went uh, years and years and years struggling back and forth. The idea, you know, uh, you, you, you do the shameful thing, you feel bad. What is shame? Covering, hiding, and all that stuff, right? And eventually you can't bear it anymore, so you confess the sin, right? And you think, okay, good, I'm, I'm all right, you know. And, and it's almost like reading the Old Testament with the kings, you know what I mean? Good one, bad one, good one, bad one, good one, bad one, you know? <laughs> like a pendulum swing, you know? And I remember in desperation going to God, and it's just like, is, th is there a such thing as cure or just symptom management here? You know, and I was talking actually, uh, this is gonna blow your mind. I was talking to a Southern Baptist deacon and uh, shared this, uh, this, this lifelong struggle that I had. And he said, You wanna know what your problem is? He said, You think that you can kind of just press pause on the presence of the Holy Spirit? And, and you think that you can just kind of, you pretend that you can just kind of, you know, He's not here now, mm. and I'll do this thing, and I know grace, and so I'll just I'll just uh, ask for forgiveness later. And I'm like, oh, you've been reading my mail. <laughs> and he said, the truth is, he's he's looking right at you. The truth is, he's always forever present, but he's not next to you. He's not up there. He's in you. He's looking out through your eyes. He's listening with these ears. He's tasting what you taste. He is simultaneously experiencing everything that you experience, right? Yeah. And he doesn't blink. By the way, uh, there's a there's a Old Testament scripture that says Israel is the apple of my eye. That's an idiom that means the circle, and the indication is is that I am looking right at her. Okay. And then there's this other scripture that everybody knows: I will never leave you nor forsake you. Leave means God isn't going to leave you. Got it? What is forsake? It's not the same concept. Hmm. So forsake, right? I'm going to forsake you. You ready? He's looking right at you, and he will not glance away for even a second. His full attention is on you, and it always has been and always will be. He, Jesus said in his final sermon, I abide in the Father, the Father abides in me. And then he made an affirmative declarative statement, I abide with you. I abide in you. It's permanent. It'll never change. Right? Hmm. Okay. So he's always there. So with this Southern Baptist deacon said, you know what you need to do? You need to acknowledge the reality that God is with you, that the Holy Spirit is right there. Okay, and then you need to invite him, formally invite him to join you as you look at this porn. And he said, go ahead and rub one out and see what happens. I was like, oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding me. Come on, come on, right? And then I did, I did. There was something that I expected from that experience that never happened. I expected to feel guilty. I expected to feel shame. I expected to feel distant. And it didn't happen. It didn't happen. There's, there's a thing called an addiction cycle, right? And guilt is an integral part of the addiction cycle. So I do some bad thing or something like that. I feel guilty, therefore I'm looking for comfort. And then I seek comfort and find it in the addiction. Hmm. 
and two hamsters on a wheel. I mean, guilt and, and shameful behavior just spin. The, the, the brilliance of the gospel is that he removes it. He takes away the catalyst. And so I, I have been forever changed. On the other side of that shameful thing that I did, I found that God was just right there with me. He didn't move. He wasn't condemning. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation. And, and I experienced that. And it's just like, this is different. This is wild. And I was literally cured. Done. Never again. Done. Done. So, so the law, Paul wrote, the law, this code of if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Okay, Paul wrote that it inspires you to sin. It entices you to sin. You're drawn into sin if you are looking at the list of rules and behaviors that are expected. But then it also says that the gospel is the cure. The gospel is the power to break it. And now, with my education, I, I understand that guilt is the catalyst that keeps you returning to sin. Who knew? That's that's incredible. So that's but when you when you invited the Holy Spirit to join you on the walk and and you did it and you felt that um I'm not sure if I got it right, but like the acceptance of who you are. Yes. Or you know, you actually inviting him into your life and who you are and what you do yes and removing that condemnation and that shame and that guilt Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is what actually brings you out of it precisely is to somehow get over this idea that uh, i did this bad thing i'm a bad person and getting down there and then kind of like that brings us back into doing the bad thing again. Right, exactly. But you get caught. So are you saying, hmm? for everybody listening, are you saying that we should not feel guilty for doing bad things? Or how, how do we... I feel like that would be the question that somebody mm-hmm, would ask. Because mm-hmm. I love this topic that we're talking about, yeah. shame and guilt, and because it's so so rampant. But how would you answer somebody if they're like, yeah, but if you don't feel guilty, then right, then you're not being convicted by the Holy Spirit. Right, right. How about being embraced in the love of the Holy Spirit? How about 100%, not 95, believing that Jesus took care of that sin? Hmm. That, it, that this, is, this is the counterintuitive thing that is the exact opposite of the spirit of religion that boggles the mind. It boggles the mind. So you have you have two people. Let's talk about identity, because identity is one of the most powerful concepts in psychology, right? Let's say you have two people, and one of them thinks that they're a worm, okay? They, they look down on themselves. They live in shame all the time. But intellectually, they understand that Jesus died for my sins, and so he could, he, could, uh, he loves me, you know? Uh, but, oh my gosh, if he only knew the truth, <laughs> you know what I mean, right? And so, so in, a, in a really true way, they think they hide the truth from God. 
at some deep, deep subconscious level, right? By, by not admitting it. Okay. Well, that sounds like torture, right? What if you had somebody that 100%, not 95, believed that God took care of all your sin? that he loves you, that he dearly, he doesn't see your sin. So you know that the blood that was on the top of the lid of the altar underneath the cherubim and all that stuff, the Ten Commandments are in the ark, but the presence of God is above it, but the blood that was put on the mercy seat and everything, God couldn't see the Ten Commandments, right? Okay, the propitiation seat and all those fancy words and everything, right? God does not see our sin, does he? The New Testament says he doesn't see it. To the extent that we believe it, that he paid it all, if that is our identity, then you act like it. Okay? So it is, it is the polar opposite of religion. I, I, um, I, I won't be able to put it in the same words that you put it. But I think this is a really, really, really deep thought that that um, I feel like people really need to get their heads around what you're saying right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that by me, oh, hiding my sin, not not exposing it to the light, kind of like oh, when I sin, it's kind of like God's not watching at that time. Yeah. Or like, and then, you know, I put on my good face, show up for church, go go put on my good face to go out in public, things like that. Isn't that kind of, because we think in the terms of works and faith mm-hmm. or works and grace, mm-hmm. and we say, well, they, they, they love the the... You know, I'm just a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Love that saying, right? They love that saying. Yeah. But it's kind of like when I, when I say that, when I say I'm a sinner saved by grace, and then I go and do these things, but I hide them from God, mm-hmm. isn't that kind of actually more of a works-based thing, that idea that we can put on a front yeah. good enough that he would see yeah. the works that we're doing. Yeah, if I just deny it, then he doesn't acknowledge it or something. Yeah, it's horrible. It's 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 not salvation. It's not. So, all right, I I, I listened to uh, your your previous podcast uh, with uh, some of my friends. Right, I actually <laughs> listened to them all. Great stuff. Great Thank stuff. You. But all right, let's talk about the judgment. Okay, there's two different judgments. Sequentially, first one is the white throne. The second one is the Bema, right? Okay. So the conviction rate at the white throne is 100%. If you are judged at the white throne, you go into hell, (laughs) right? Okay. And um, uh, it says there that there are many books that are opened, right? And it's uh, because the watchers and the people who record your life, it is the record of your life. And so those uh, in our world that would say that when they go to heaven, their good is going to be weighed against the bad, well, they're right. They're not wrong. That's what happens at the white throne judgment. Your good is weighed against your bad, and you lose 100%, right? Okay. 
When that is complete, then the second judgment happens because God has separated the sheep and the goats, right? And uh, and then you go to the Bema seat. If you were just to Google Bema, B-E-M-A, uh, Bema seat, you can see uh, images. You can look up a picture of it. It, it sits there in Greece, right? And uh, and when Alexander Great uh, uh, conquered the, the 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 area that he did. Uh, he brought together all of the, the best athletes of each country and had them compete. So the, the competitions were somewhat brutal and everything, right? But that was to ventilate the need for violence. That, and these are, this is the origin of the Olympic Games. And so today we have Olympic Games, and you have a platform where there's the first, second, third place, and and the people stand on a platform, and they bow down low, and they put a lanyard over their head, and then they have this gold medal, or silver, or bronze medal, right? That's what we did today. That's what we do today. They had the Olympic Games back then, and when the competition is over, read, your life is over, okay? Uh, you're, You're off of the playing field. You get judged at the Bema seat. What are you judged for? You're judged for reward. And you know how Nero had that uh, bald spot and everything and a male pattern baldness, and he also had that little uh, 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 crown that, w- that was like leaves and stuff like that? Okay, right. you, you can picture Nero? Yeah. All right. Um, okay, the, the, the reward that people got were crowns. And in the Bible, it lists five different things that you do that you can earn crowns for, right? And so here we are, we're on the field, we want to score as many points as we can, right? Uh, And earn, you know, hopefully five crowns. I mean, that would be great, right? When we go for our judgment, it isn't sin that is judged. That's the white throne. Hmm. There's only one book at the Bema seat, the Lamb's Book of Life. And if you're there, your name is in there. You aren't judged for the good and bad that you did, right? That's the distinction between the non-believers and the believers. Okay, so let's say that your name is written in a book. Great. Okay, so your destiny is heaven. You get to eat of the tree of life. Good for you. Okay, but there's there's uh, stories that are told about the Bema seat judgment that reveal something to us. Number one, you're not judged by your good and bad that you did based on that, like a scales of balance. Okay, uh, number two, some of the good things that you've done because you're only judged there for the good. It's wood, hay, and stubble that is burned up, consumed, made into ash, blown away in the wind. It has zero value. Now, at the bema, you're judged for rewards. So these are good things you've done. So there are most certainly good things you've done that add up to zero. Agree. Right. Okay. Then it says there's other things that are gold, silver, and precious stones, and the fire of judgment even refines them and makes them even more brilliant. And then it says that you are given crowns. Well, question, what are crowns made of? Maybe gold. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Okay. What kind of crown did Jesus wear? The crown of thorns. Ah, wood, hay, and stubble. He took that. We get crowns made of gold, silver, and precious stones. What does it then say that the believers do with these crowns? You just received them. What do we do? We lay them at Jesus' feet. Okay. Okay. 
Every word I just said, you can, you can read right. for yourself in Scripture. Now I'm going to add an interpretation, okay? So this isn't necessarily true. I believe that the act of taking the crowns and laying them at his feet is synonymous with saying, these are your works, not mine. You earned these. This mm. is what you did, not me. So that's just my interpretation of that. If that is the case, what does it mean? We're walking around this planet with our five senses, right? And we're doing what we think is a good thing and all that kind of stuff, right? If we're aware of it and, and it was my intentionality to do it, I think it has no value whatsoever. I think that the Holy Spirit inside of us is doing wonderful things that we're not aware of. Why do bad things happen to good people? Great question, right? <laughs> if they're a good person, let's say that they're filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Maybe bad things happen to Holy Spirit-filled people because that is the work that God does, that when your business burns to the ground or something like that, your neighbors and everything, feel they feel a presence in you, right? What is it that they feel? Maybe they feel a peace. Maybe they feel a patience, a calm, reserved presence that is literally the Holy Spirit. I, I think that the works that we're going to, are going to survive are his works, not ours. Now, this is a new idea for me, so let's mm -hmm. see if I've got my head around this. What, what you just went over... That's very interesting. Um, you're talking about everybody goes into the white throne judgment. No, just the goats. Okay. Okay, so so maybe I misunderstood there. So I was thinking everybody went to the white throne judgment, and then he separated from that the sheep no. because they accept Christ? Or it's two different judgments for two different separate um, groups. Exactly. Yeah. The sheep and the goats are separated. The goats go to the white throne. The sheep go to the Bama seat for reward. Gotcha. Yeah. So the sheep that go to the Bama judgment are just the people who accepted Jesus yes. as their savior. Right. Okay. Right. And then, and then we go into from, from that judgment, the Bama judgment, he's only looking at the good things that we've done. Yes. Is that so? That's, because that's it's for reward. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, that that's a that's a really cool thing. Definitely something to look more into as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So, if if I were to look at this idea that that shame and guilt, mm -hmm. I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be carrying shame. I shouldn't be carrying guilt. Mm -hmm. now, Doesn't that give me? Um, just a freedom to do whatever I want. Hmm. I believe it does. And uh, D. James Kennedy from Fort Lauderdale, he, he put it this way. He said that the liberty that we have is that we can do what we want. However, the wanter changes. That was my conversion experience. Coming out of this Arminian, hyper-Arminian, New Amish farming village, Right? And, and, and uh, actually meeting Christ through the Holy Spirit in such a powerful way. I'll, I'll tell you, 
All right, let me, let me, I guess, wrap up with it, with that first story that I told, okay? Where I grew up, oh my gosh, here's an example, okay? If, um, if you wanted to get married, first, there's no dating, okay? And, uh, and what I was raised with is, is that you'd simply pray for a spouse, okay? And uh, then you know, the Holy Spirit would say, you know, Mary Lou over there. Okay, well, then I would talk to my father. My father would go to the elder. The elder would go to Mary Lou's father, and then Mary Lou's father would say something to Mary Lou. She'd have a reasonable amount of time, like a month or so, to, to pray about it and see if it seemed right. Then she would tell her father. Her father would tell the elder. The elder would tell uh, my father, and my father would give me the news. So it's, it's going through this hierarchy and everything, right? So there, there, there's all this authority structure and such, right? Uh, when you would join the church, our vernacular says get born again or get saved or something like that. The vernacular was join the church because you were absolutely in or out, okay? And uh, so, so if you were on the outside and you wanted to be on the inside, you would join the church. It's a process, I don't know about today, but it, when I was growing up, where you would have to go to the elder and, and basically keep a journal like what you have there of every sin you ever committed, whatever comes to mind, and you'd have to go and confess and, and uh, ask forgiveness of every person that you ever hurt and all that stuff, right? At the end of this process, when you thought you were finished... Uh, then you would stand in a closed meeting before the church, and everybody could quiz you. Okay, and then you could, uh, my word, you could earn your baptism. Hmm. Okay, maybe that's a little bit snarky <laughs> to say earn, but you know what I mean, right? Then you're baptized. Okay, so that's the construct. That's the construct that I had about what it meant to be a Christian, is that you join the church by going through this humiliation process. So I ended up, I told you that, that God bit me in the butt and wouldn't let me go, right? He's like a bulldog who just, he's just persistent guy, that guy is. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, eventually I, I just kind of wore down, and it was after a, a, a great amount of time of attempting to put a lot of time in between me and any sin. So in my unregenerate state, I was trying not to do any sins so that when I came to join the church, I could go and confess to certain people, but that was four years ago, okay? And so I went through a time period of attempting not to sin, hmm. complete, total, utter failure. So that was a lesson that I learned on my power without the, without the Holy Spirit, I'm a sinner, That's, I'm toast. I can't put I can't put days between me and sin. Okay, so then I, I go into this little Baptist church on Bevel Road, and uh, from the pulpit I hear the gospel. I understood the gospel and everything, and uh, you know the Baptists, right? I love Baptists. You know, I are one. Um, <laughs> But it's like, okay, you know, uh, every, you know, bow your head, close your eyes, you know, if every eye is closed, you know, and he leads in the sinner's prayer and everything. If you said that prayer, slip your hand up. So I did. Nobody's looking around, you know, and uh, if you said that prayer, come to the front. Okay, for my upbringing, for my construct, what does going to the front mean? I'm going to stand there and field questions. Mm. I didn't have the guts to do that, right? So I chickened out. I said the sinner's prayer as he led it, but I didn't join the church. I didn't go to the front. I was saved and didn't know it. 
And it had been years leading up to that epic moment where I went to a church to join it. Okay? I left there, went home, and uh, grabbed a couple of beers because the first one goes down in about 10 seconds, and the second one you can taste, you know, right? Uh, And then uh, it's a long story and everything, but I I think 25% of the words I used started with F, (laughs) if you know what I mean, right? Just the way I talk, okay? I I continued to drink but never got drunk, never. I continued to go to topless bars. I continued to go out and uh, try to find joy in life. I had left the, the idea of God behind, and I was attempting to live the life of fun. And I could not find it. There was no joy in it. I, I did never, I never got drunk. And, and when I would cuss, man, I'm telling you, all the four-letter words would come out because it just flows from me. Because, and, and nothing, nothing, nothing changed with that. But when I used the Lord's name in vain, which I used to do often, I literally had a knot in my gut. It was foreign to me. I didn't understand it. Like, like I ate something terrible every single time. And so today, what I, what I know, not just from experience, but from the Word of God, I don't think he cares about current vernacular. He cares about his name, you know? And, and I no longer could take his name in vain. And after about three months of just utter futility and trying to find happiness and all the stuff that used to make me happy, I just I gave up because it wasn't there. There was no joy in it. And then I ended up back in a Baptist church. You know, I was saved and didn't know it. And so what, what God did, I'm not saying that this is the only way God works. My gosh, he never healed any two people the same way. Every single time he healed, it's not formulaic. And so I'm not imposing this on anyone else. I'm saying that for the way that I grew up in this religion of rules, he showed me that The salvation that I received was him. And then the second thing that he showed me, my sanctification is him. Mm -hmm. He will most certainly finish the thing he started. He will sanctify us. He did it against my will to teach me that. And that's powerful. That's powerful. So, So why in the world would I look at myself? Why would I gauge my own sin? Why would I do that? He's got me. What, what does he say in his word? He says, you're in my hand and nothing, and he goes to great lengths to give all the contrasts, nothing can take you, not just out of my hand, but nothing can take you away from my love. Love. Hmm. Wow. See, so, so this is, the, what, who was it? Was it C.S. Lewis that said the gospel has to be true because there's not a human mind that could have come up with something so crazy you know, or something along those lines, right? It, it wouldn't have come from us because it isn't fair. It's hardly even logical. It's passionate. It's radical love. And that is the power of God to break people free of sin. Not by our effort. This is uh, this is really good stuff. 
Um, no, I appreciate you going down this path because I feel like that's that's a topic that is debated, and mm-hmm. it's a topic that's kind of like it, it. Sometimes I feel like yes, we agree. Like you know, when when we talk about, uh, I was having a discussion in a Facebook comment section where I should stay out of. Now this, uh, <laughs> it's it's um, you know, somebody was saying you know. Um, we're sinners, this and that, this and that. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I was feeling bored that day. So I went mm-hmm. ahead and said, I don't, I don't identify as a sinner. I, I'm righteous because God said I'm righteous. And, right. And that's, that's what I put that in. And then I got the barrage of comments like, mm. oh, so you don't sin? And I said, I never said that. I didn't say that. That's not what I said. It's not I my said, identity. You know, but that, I don't identify as that. And then they're like, you can identify as whatever you want, but you're a sinner, this and that. We're a sinner. We're born sinners, this and that. And I was like, if you don't, you know, you... And I was like, no, it's the righteousness of, of God. He right. sees me as righteous, right. so I will accept the way he sees me. Right. I'll accept the way he sees me. I will yeah. I'll reject what... Satan tried to put on me, mm-hmm. and I'll accept how he sees me. That's right. And then, and they're saying, "Well, it's you can't be righteous enough for this and that." And I was like, <laughs> "Listen, <laughs> we're not disagreeing on that. We're not disagreeing on the the topic of whether I can do this in my own strength or not. Right? We agree on that point. Right? But I just don't call myself a sinner. Um, and it's it's such a I, I just find it interesting that why is it so it's so difficult to to come to an agreement on this topic right. even though we right. we believe the same thing but would still accept a diff we'll accept different labels mm-hmm. uh, maybe we're just arguing over semantics or something no 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 I feel it's like very powerful to say like I'm no I I am the righteousness of Christ he, that's right you put that on me I'm a new creation right right. So, so there's a there's a, a lesser known method of execution that the Romans had, uh, and that is, uh, let's say that I am uh, convicted of murder. Okay, what the Romans would do because because honestly, what the Romans wanted was peace, right? And so they wanted to scare people straight because that's the level that they operated at, right? So, all right, so I'm convicted of murder. I'd be forced to lay face down on the ground with my arms and legs uh, out straight. Okay, and then they would take my victim, the dead body, and lay it down on my back, face mm-hmm. down, and then they would bind my arms and legs to the dead corpse's arms and legs, and then they just walk away. They're done. Okay. Now with that two hundred pounds on my back, I may be able to get up on my hands and knees, and maybe I could maybe I could get up on my feet and I could walk or something like that, right? But what would happen is that dead body that's tied to my back over the course of a couple of weeks was going to decay with bacteria and and all that bacteria is going to leach through my skin it's going to infect me i'm going to get sepsis and eventually i'm going to die hmm. and and so you have these people that are laying around with a corpse tied to them dying and it's like hey bubba that's what happens when you commit murder right mm-hmm. and that's the idea of the romans right that was what Paul had in mind in Romans when he was talking about the dead man, the old man, right? Hmm. So if you were tied to a corpse, would you put lipstick and cosmetics on the corpse? 
to make it look better. <laughs> I don't think so. That represents the flesh. You are a new creation. That corpse is not you. It's foreign. It's foreign to you. Your identity is in Christ, and you are not a sinner. You are a saint. And so if, <laughs> if I have sin, it isn't just the dead man that I am bound to, but also it's in me. But if I uh, rub my hand across your wood desk here and I get a splinter, the splinter is in me. Did it become me? Mm. No. no. It's in me, but it's foreign. It's foreign to me. And my body all by itself will expel the foreign thing from me. And so this is the, the, the idea of identity. Identity is one of the most powerful concepts in psychology, right? Who you believe you are, as a man thinks, so is he, right? Okay, so if I believe that I am perfected in Christ, I'll act like it to the degree that I believe it. So let me tell you something that I learned from the American Psychiatric Association, right? And uh, I learned this actually from the head of uh, the Tennessee, uh, the, the state chapter for the American Psychiatric. He's a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Okay, and uh, he taught me the most powerful concept. It's actually I have a sermon and I have a blog post on my website, newlifecounselingcenter.net, uh, where I detail this concept. But there are seven different levels of morality, and and a lot of believers think there's one. Thank you for listening to the Men of True Worth podcast, where I interview Dr. Bob Fisher in a two-part series. So go ahead and click on part two next. And while you're here, click like, subscribe, comment, share this podcast with others who it could help. Again, click on part two of this interview so you can hear where we go deep into what those seven levels of morality are and how they relate to your walk with Christ. See you there.